He has running back one upside. He will not finish outside of as a top 20 running back. He is still 22, the workhorse in rankings. It's just way too low. A lot of Fournette disrespect has been circling the timeline. I, I think everybody that's trashing Fournette, even some guys saying that he's not going to finish as a top 25 back, which is just stupid. The disrespect has gone too far. And there's some people out there that think Raquel Armstead is going to eat into Fournette's role. No, just no. Fournette will finish as an RB1. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Joey, so my only question to you really is, you know, one, what do you have to say to yourself? What do you have to say to the people? And two, do you actually have time to record this podcast or do you have to go hang out with Shrek? Because I know the two of you are close, seeing as you're a donkey, complete donkey. Oh, Benny, Benny, Benny. You know, nice little clip you chopped up there. I'll mm-hmm. give you that. But that, you know, was over a month ago when he was on the team. And I guess I should have believed some rumors saying that he might get cut. I just didn't think that they would be that shady and cut him 10 days before the season started. That's just my fault. But we have some breaking news. Leonard Fournette. Uh-oh. Leonard Fournette signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I am personally just finding out about this right now. Um, Mind is racing. What do you think about that? I mean, my initial thought off the top of my head is that is like a best case scenario for him. That's actually like fantastic for his value. Yeah, I really can't tell if you're trolling or not, but it is one of the best cases for him. Um, It's one of the best landing spots possible with Tom Brady, Bruce Arians, and the offensive players that they have in Tampa Bay. Maybe the Leonard Fournette truthers got bailed out on this one. Big time. Because, you know, a lot of people were saying that he he's he's dust, you know, he's trash, not, not going to provide any fantasy value this year. But I think he uh provides at least some touchdown upside in this offense. I mean, can he displace Ronald Jones of the starting running back job? Do you do you think that's in the realm of possibility? Do you know how much money they gave him out of curiosity? Because that could tell us right away. But no. if that is not out yet, then I would say even still, it's probably very likely. I mean, as much as, you know, we're not crazy about Ronald Jones. I think he's probably in a similar situation. He'll get less touches attempts trade Mm -hmm. attempts that he would have gotten in jacksonville but i think the pass catchers there like ronald jones Keyshawn vaughn like these guys aren't accomplished pass catchers he could see more receptions than i was anticipating he would see with armstead and thompson in that role in jacksonville i mean frankly i think that this really combines two of my favorite things to do in fantasy and on this podcast which is one uh steal your guys and then claim them for myself and two just switch up on guys that I've hated on for a long time and just become bandwagon truther. So I'm officially going to cap for Fournette until the end of existence and completely ignore everything else that has ever been said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, nah, you, you got to stay on one side. You can't hop over. So, I mean, I did. I hopped over too. I only liked Leonard Fournette in Jacksonville because of his potential touch volume. That's the only reason I mentioned that he was most likely dust in that episode. Like I wasn't really going hard body for him. I was just like, he's going to get 300 touches and you want that in a fantasy running back. That's why, you know, I've tweeted that he's still a fantasy asset, but I think that's enough Leonard Fournette talk um, signed to Tampa Bay and us truthers get bailed out. 
Uh, so shout out to Bruce Arians, shout out to Tampa Bay, and shout out to Leonard Fournette. Absolutely. I'm glad that us truthers can be happy about this. I'm really happy for my boy. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 85 of the DFS Dose Podcast, your fix of daily fantasy sports information, strategy, and analysis. I'm your host, Ben Hover, joined as I always am by Joey Carrion. And on today's show, we are going to be doing sort of a crash course in NFL DFS, NFL DFS for beginners. I know a lot of people originally know us from DFS, and yet, you know, over the past what, four or five months, we've been strictly focusing on best ball, you know, season long, everything in between. And, you know, maybe there's some people out there who want to get into NFL DFS. They've never played before. And I I would imagine that'd be pretty daunting, you know, even as a player who, you know, was into season long way before I got into DFS, I found it really to be a difficult transition. There's a lot of terms, a lot of stuff that you may not understand. It's a different game in terms of theory. And we're going to just break down some of the essential things that you need to know when it comes to getting into NFL DFS for the first time. So we're going to take a beginner's approach, a a look at NFL DFS for beginners. And before we do that, Joey, would you mind telling the people how they can support the podcast? As always, you can support the DFS Dose by subscribing or following us on every major podcast platform, which includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, whatever podcast site you, you use, we're on there. So you can find us on all of those podcast platforms, then obviously you can leave a rating and review while you are listening, and then five stars only. And then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the DFS Dose. And then, as always, you can find our content on the DFSDose.com, which includes Ben's rankings. And then with the NFL season starting, we're going to be putting up some content centered around daily fantasy sports nfl dfs which is where we originated so be on the lookout for that and that is the best way to support us absolutely you know tons of stuff coming on the youtube channel in this podcast feed we are officially on our in-season schedule that means two podcasts per week we'll have the thursday episode dedicated to previewing the upcoming slate for the weekend and a monday show recapping the action as well as uh, you know, recapping our personal successes or downfalls, hoping for many more successes as this year continues. So make sure you are subscribed, like Joey said. And uh, yeah, let's get right into it. Starting off with sort of uh, an essential terms list for DFS. If you are listening to a DFS podcast and you've only ever played, you know, regular redraft fantasy, you're going to hear a lot of terms that you may not know. And some of these are strictly DFS terms. Some of them are terms that are interlaced with poker and and betting. And these are all things that I think you need to know to really be equipped to handle the beast that is NFL DFS. So let's get it going. And, you know, here are some of the things that I've been thinking are very essential to know. And we're going to start off with the difference between a cash game and a GPP or a tournament, which is an essential difference It's the basic main two categories of contests that you can compete in when it comes to daily fantasy football. And Joey, tell the people what a cash game is. Yeah, so a cash game in DFS 
consists basically of two different types of contests. So 50-50s or double-ups, which they're also known as, or head-to-heads. So obviously a head-to-head is when you are just facing off against one other player and then a 50-50 or a double up is where you, you know, you're in a field of, let's say, 2,500, 3,000 people in the top 50%. Well, now it's usually like top 45% of the field get paid the same exact dollar amount. So if you enter a $25 double up, you'll win $50. That is the case for first, you know, through 1,000th place. Like you don't make any less or any more money depending on where you finish. So that is, in short terms, what a cash game is. Yeah, essentially any contest that you have roughly a 50% chance of winning and you will double up your money or at least come very close to it. For example, if you're playing a $1 head-to-head, you versus one other person on DraftKings, the winner wins $1.80, not $2, you know, because they need to get their rake, and we'll go over what rake and, you know, overlay is in a minute. But first, GPP, which is the other main category of contest in DFS. So you're either going to be in a cash game or a GPP, and what GPP stands for is guaranteed prize pool. Now, that term is often used interchangeably with the term tournament, although it is slightly different because a cash game can be a guaranteed prize pool. However, if you're listening to a podcast or you just hear somebody, you know, speaking and passive and they say GPP, chances are they're referring to a tournament, not a large field double up that also has a guaranteed prize pool. But essentially what that means, GPP, guaranteed prize pool, is that regardless of if that contest fills, regardless of if one person joins or the max amount of people joins, that money's getting paid off. So... The, the prize is guaranteed. It doesn't need to fill. No matter what, those prizes that you see listed on the prize page are getting paid off. Usually as it relates to tournaments, you know, these are going to be contests with larger fields. You know, it can be anywhere from a thousand people to, you know, massive, massive fields like the Millionaire Maker on DraftKings Week 1 is, I think, a field of over like a million people, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, the the, the payout structure of these is going to be very top heavy. You know, it's not going to be like a 50-50 where you get in the money you double. No, it's going to be like usually 1.5x your money, you know, right around the cash line and it's only going to pay out the top, you know, 20-30% of players opposed to roughly 45 to 50% of the field. So it's harder to cash in a GPP, but the prizes are very top heavy and you can win a lot more money for smaller buy-in. So that's the appeal of that. And we'll do a whole segment dedicated to the different strategies and reasons that you play cash games and GPPs a little bit later. But first, uh, we're going to rattle off a few more of these terms, Joey, and starting with one that is very, you know, intertwined with GPPs and tournaments, and that's going to be MME and or multi-entry. Yeah, so multi-entry is essentially where you are entering more than one lineup. Um, So you're entering multiple lineups into these GPPs that are not single entry contests. And usually if you're an mme you're entering 150 lineups into whatever contest, you know, you're playing in. So that, that's essentially what multi-entry is. And you're not going to see a lot of casuals MME. You're really only going to see the sharks of the DFS community 
do this. Which makes a lot of sense, though, because it, it costs a lot of money, right? Like, imagine just the Millie Maker, for example. It's, like, usually going to be $20. I know it's cheaper in week one, but it's typically yeah. a $20. I mean, you if you're multi-entering the maximum amount of lineups, which is 150 across every site, which is, like, a law-mandated thing at this point, that 150 is the max. If you're max entering that, you're paying $3,000. You know, so, so casual mm-hmm. players... You know, people who are playing, playing, you know, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, something like that. You know, they don't they don't have that money to be dropping 3000 on one contest where some people, you know, it's just what they do. You know, they play 10,000, they play 20,000 a week. It's like it's a different tier of player. And those players aren't necessarily better, but they do have the bankroll and, and the money to do that. And, you know, more power to them. I think that one of the things that a lot of people feel scared about or worried about when getting into DFS is you hear these stories about people. It's like, well, oh, they have 150 lineups. If I'm only putting one lineup in, how am I going to possibly beat that? But realistically, the odds of winning by MMEing are are minimal. You know, it, there's yeah. a boost, but it, I was, was going to say right? that it's minimal. The difference in percentage between entering one or maybe five lineups and entering 150 lineups is honestly relatively small when you take into consideration these contests that have fields of 100,000, 200,000 entries. And then, like you referenced earlier, the Millie Maker, uh, which is $5 for week one, has over a million entries. So in the grand scheme of things, it honestly, it, it improves your chances, but very minuscule. Yeah, and I wouldn't be afraid of, you know, entering these lineups single shotting these large gpps with a single bullet i mean it's been proven to be successful in the past there have been plenty of people who have won with you know under 10 lineups or even with single bullets in in the millie maker i think it happened twice last year i think it happened more than twice if i'm not mistaken i think out of the last 50 millie maker contests over the course of the last three seasons i'm pretty sure at least 15 to 20 winners have entered 10 or less lineups Mm -hmm. So it's not like you need to max enter the Millie Maker to win a million dollars. Yeah, that that basically sums up what MMEing is. Another important term is rake, and rake goes hand in hand with overlay. So what rake is, and if you've played poker or gambled in any other sense outside of DFS, you probably know what rake is, but just in case you don't, rake is the money that the company takes from user entry fees from the prize pool. So usually it's seen as a percentage figure. You know, it'd be like this contest has 9% rake, which means that all of the money that users are entering to play in that contest, DraftKings is taking 9% of it or FanDuel's taking mm. 9% of it. And one of the great things in fantasy football or daily fantasy football, I should say, is overlay. Now what overlay refers to a contest where the guaranteed prize pool is higher than the user entries. So overlay is a great thing. And there are two ways that you can come across overlay in DFS. One is when a tournament with a guaranteed prize pool does not fill, or the second way is through promotion. So example, if you look at the DraftKings week one slate right now, there's a tournament called the Bargain Bin. It's a $200 single entry tournament with a field of 1,250 players and a prize pool of $275,000. So if you do the math, you can see that DraftKings is actually adding $25,000 on top of the entry fees 
to the prize pool. And, and the reason that they would do this is to bring people to the site. They're actually not making any money. They're losing 25K to put this tournament up. But, you know, it's a marketing thing. And it's the best tournament that you can you can gravitate towards. And I will probably be entering that, even though I don't usually enter $200 single entries. I will probably be in that week one just because it's such a great opportunity to, to pass up. Yeah, and that goes well into the next segment or term that we're going to talk about and that's your bankroll okay so if you're listening to this managing your bankroll is probably the hardest thing that you will have to do when it comes to dfs or one of the hardest things i should say so essentially what you're what you want to do over the course of a season is have a set amount of money that you're willing to gamble with that won't affect your daily life now with me, this is one of the hardest things that, <laughs> this is one of the hardest things that I personally deal with because, you know, some weeks I'll be like, oh, I really like this lineup. So I'm going to play 100% of my bankroll and then I lose and I'm broke. <laughs> okay. You don't want to do that. Essentially, the DFS rule and the rule known across the industry is the 80, 20, 10 rule. And that's 80% cash games, 20% tournaments. 10% of your bankroll. So if you're on a strict bankroll management, you're only going to want to play 10% of your bankroll, like I just said, in those specific types of contests. That is the hardest part for me is is not playing or not overextending your bankroll for a specific week or whatnot. And it just went hand in hand with what Ben was saying, how he's going to play, you know, however much money, but that's probably, you know, more than 10% of your bankroll i'm assuming that, that you're going to play week one uh, so that's why it is the hardest thing to do for a dfs player especially if you you're not strict with yourself and you're like me a degenerate gambler. <laughs> so because <laughs> because i am a degenerate and i mean you basically want to play the same amount of money every single week unless you're really, 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 really convinced that this that the lineup for that week is it. It's the complete nuts. That that would be the only time I would go higher than 10%. We'll talk about this a little more in terms of contest selection and what you're willing to be risk adverse to in terms of the contest that you're choosing. You know, I think it's important for new DFS players or people interested in getting into DFS to understand that bankroll is very different from your account balance. Like Joey is saying, I think that that point gets across, but like, you know, your bankroll isn't usually going to be your account balance. Like if you're playing with, say, I don't know, $5,000 for the season, like I'm not going to deposit $5,000 into my DraftKings. Like that money's not doing anything sitting in the account. You know, I'm, I am I might make a deposit multiple times over the season, but still have in mind what my bankroll is and what percentage I'm playing mm -hmm. in a given week. And, you know, I'll say that I'm very good at this. Actually, I, I'm very disciplined. I always play the same amount for the most part, although I do start my season in week two, week two through 17, because week one, I already know that I don't have self-control. Talked about it on the last <laughs> podcast, want to increase my self-control. So one way that I do that is like, look, week one, I've been waiting for this for, you know, eight months or whatever. I'm going hard and then I'm going to be strict with my bankroll <laughs> after that. So, I mean, yeah, I might drop a couple G's week one, but it's nothing to worry about because I'm going to be very responsible after that. I promise. Yeah. And, and I, I think that is the right way to approach things in terms of your bankroll 
Now, another term that I want to talk about real quick is your ROI. And if you've taken any business class or if you've worked in business or if you worked at any company, you've heard of this term. It's called return on investment ROI. This is the percentage of money you are making on your investment in DFS. So essentially, a profitable DFS player, if you want to be a profitable DFS player, your ROI has to lay somewhere between 8 to 10% at the, at the high end at the end of the year. But obviously, the higher ROI you have, the more profitable you are. Uh, and, and usually, I just look at that at the end of the season. But you can keep track of that on RotoTrack. You can go on RotoTracker, put your DraftKings or FanDuel CSV into the tracker, and it'll let you know your ROI in specific contests. And that's good to go back. And then you can analyze you know, what contests you're better at, what contests you're worse at, and what contests you should be playing in and targeting every single week. Yeah, definitely important to understand and look back at your results and, you know, understand what your EV is. And EV is like expected value, which again, it's a term outside of DFS, but it's very applicable. Like, you know, if I win you know, roughly 60% of my head to heads or something like that, then you can know what the expected value of entering that is and what ROI you should expect from that over a long period of time. Of course, you know, week to week variation is going to be a thing, but, you know, digging into these numbers, learning what you are good at and what you are bad at as a player is very important in terms of improvement. And these are the kind of things that, you know, really take, I think, DFS and the good DFS players and elevate them to another tier from your standard oh, yeah. player. Cause these are, these mm-hmm. are, it's like a real, real thing. And the effects are evident. You know, some people get tilted and they get mad and upset when things don't go their way, but it's like, you can always improve your game in DFS and look at the numbers and figure out what you're doing wrong and what you can do better as long as you're able to take that responsibility and not just, you know, blame bad luck or or something else that doesn't exist. Yeah. And you could take that advice and apply it to your life. Absolutely. If you go about anything with that type of mindset, you're going to become better anything that you do in life if you're willing to take responsibility and you're willing to go look at your past results and fix whatever you know whatever might be wrong in your process so that's good advice listeners take that advice and like ben said the one thing that separates good dfs players from bad dfs players is just doing these extra steps and recognizing that to be profitable in dfs you have to put the time in so yeah Absolutely. Let's zoom in a little bit on some of the terms that are more like specific to like the general lineups more so than the, you know, the overarching theme. So let's talk about what a lock is, which is something that seems pretty self-explanatory, I think. But, you know, I, I think that it's a little bit more nuanced. And Joey, what, what I, how I view a lock, and you can tell me if you disagree, obviously it's somebody that is a must-own player or, or a player that you should be playing. But I think that a lot of people, even including us, use the term loosely. Like, oh, uh, Christian McCaffrey's a lock this week. Okay, well, he might be a great play, but I think a true lock on a slate is actually somewhat rare. And I think that, you know, when true locks present themselves, you know, a player who's a real lock is somebody that's clearly mispriced and not just like a DraftKings mispriced, but like, something that an event causes. For example, say Zeke Elliott tears his ACL in practice. Okay, well, the the salary's already up. Tony Pollard's 4K or 3.9K or whatever it is. He is an absolute lock. You have to play him. 
Don't think about it. Don't try and talk yourself out of it. It's a flat-out misprice if DraftKings released the salary with the news that we as players have, you know, he would be 8K. So that, that I think, is what a true lock is, even though a lot of people will loosely and casually use the term just to, you know, endorse a player that they like or a play that they think is really good. Yeah, for sure. Um, so an example of a true lock, I'll, I'll use an example from last season, was Jalen Samuels, the week that he was playing Indianapolis. So whatever reason, I think James Conner got hurt. And Jalen Samuels on that slate, if I'm remembering correctly, was 3700 Okay. A $3,700 backup running back moving in to a starting position for that specific week is an absolute lock. That's somebody that you just play free square. You take it and you don't look back at it. And in that game, Jalen Samuels had 13 catches for 73 yards. So it worked out. He was 3,700, ended up scoring about 21 points. So that's the players that Ben is talking about, just guys that you can't pass up. And I will say they usually are running backs and they're usually backup running backs whose starters got hurt in front of them and the prices were already up. So DraftKings couldn't account for the injury. But yeah, a true lock is for like I said, Jalen Samuels, uh, 3,700. That those are the players that you just have to play, or else you're going to get burned by them. And locks are often synonymous with chalk. And Joey, do you want to tell people mm-hmm. what chalk is? It's a it's a DFS specific term in terms of you know NFL fantasy. Yeah, so chalk is, is very simple. It's just a player who will be heavily owned and and the entire field in a specific contest is going to be on this guy. It's usually one of the best plays on the slate. Like I mentioned, Jalen Samuels was chalk that week against Indy last year, and he was around 80% owned, I think. So chalk is just a player that everyone knows is going to be very popular. And, you know, he's probably in a good matchup at a very cheap price. Uh, But yeah, chalk is just a player who will be heavily owned in simple terms. Yep. And, and if you don't have access to ownership projections or anything like that, just listen to a few DFS you know, podcasts. You can figure out who yeah. the chalk is because <laughs> everybody is going to be talking about them. The entire industry will be on the chalk because it, it becomes very obvious, especially towards the end of the mm-hmm. week, who, who the chalk will be on a given week. And we can close out this terms list here with two uh, derogatory terms, if you will, two terms that that are used as insults within the DFS community. You may have heard them, and I think they have their origins in poker, which has a lot of similarities to DFS, but that story is for another time. And that is fish and donkey. You're going to hear this a lot, especially because I do a podcast with one. So Joey, fish and donkey, do you want to tell the people? I know you have a lot of experience here. (laughs) Nah, I mean, in my notes uh, about fish and donkey, all I have written down is Ben. That, that's it. That's all I've. That's all I've written down. Uh-huh. It's just Ben. But no, uh, fish and donkey are synonyms, and basically what they mean is an inexperienced or poor DFS player, a DFS player that makes stupid plays and gets rewarded sometimes with those stupid plays. Now, in their minds, they're not making stupid plays, but in everybody else's minds. They are not good plays. So that is essentially what a fish slash donkey is. Um, you could use them interchangeably, but yeah, it's just a bad player, 
a bad DFS player specifically. And like Ben said, they it, it did originate from poker, which Ben is also a donkey in no because he likes to suck out every single Mm-mm. hand that he plays <laughs> in. But that's that's another story for another podcast. Um, yeah. But yeah, fish, donkey, there's a lot of them out there. Many, many. That's why DFS is so great. And I, I will say that I personally think that there's a slight nuance. Like, I, the way that I think of it is like a fish is somebody who's inexperienced. Like, they're, it's like a, a fish in a big pond, right? Like, maybe somebody who, you know, doesn't really play DFS often. I think that you can be very experienced at DFS. You know, you've been playing for five years and you can still be a donkey. I mean, yeah, the ch- the terms are definitely interchangeable to an extent, but if you wanted to write some dictionary definitions, I think, you know, donkey is more just like a straight dumb, like, you know, if you make a donkey play, it's dumb. It doesn't matter, you know, how experienced you are, whereas fish, like, I think Like playing like- Devin Smith in DFS in 2019. Right. That That's a donkey move. It is. E- even the even the greats are sometimes um, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> um but yeah so that's kind of like a dfs dictionary for beginners i hope that that was helpful for the people and now let's transition over to some more dedicated sections to this podcast here including the difference between cash games and gpps now we talked about it briefly but let's dive a little bit deeper uh so in uh in summary cash games you know something that you have a 50 percent chance of winning and will basically double your money and a gpp is usually in reference to a tournament with a much higher consolidated amount of money up top and less of the field wins so joey what are some of the differences for you in terms of cash games and gpps and maybe some of the different goals that you as a player should have ahead of time before entering into those different types of contests. Yeah, so I mean, I guess it just depends on why you're playing DFS. A lot of people in the industry say that, you know, you should just be playing for fun. And that is something that I agree with. Like, you shouldn't be out here trying to grind DFS. I mean, we're degenerate, so we do it. But DFS is is meant to be fun. And if if you're one of just those players that wants to go and have a little bit of money on some of the NFL games and, and the players, you're going to want to gravitate towards the GBPs that have, you know, higher prize pools, right? Uh, because you, you want to win a large sum of money. Like everybody wants to become a millionaire, right? Uh, so, uh, so I would say it just depends on your goal as a player. Uh, just speaking back to the like the goals uh, comment, and my goal is obviously to win a million dollars because I am going to win a million dollars this season. But I'm also grinding cash games, like I'm max entering head to heads at the low levels, and I'm ma- and I'm basically max entering any single entry double up that I can find, and just getting into essentially what a cash game is uh, in terms of your roster breakdown is you want to target the best place possible. You don't want to worry about ownership, you know, who's going to be high owned, who's going to be low owned. You just want to make the best plays possible. And these are going to be the guys that have higher floors. So a floor is a term used to describe the lowest possible score we realistically predict for a player. So the higher the floor you can get for your team, the better. By picking players with higher floors, you will construct a very safe lineup that will be scoring consistent numbers. So essentially in cash games, you just want to target those guys that are great plays and they have a great uh, projected floor for that week. And then you just obviously want to hope that your process works out and you cash in those cash games. Yeah, and I can't emphasize enough 
Joey's point about goals, like these are things that you should know before you're entering the contest. You know, do I want to grind this cash game and work all week on finding what I believe to be the best construction of a lineup to give me the safest results, to give me a lineup that I believe can beat roughly 50% of the field? Because it doesn't matter if you have you know, a lineup that goes off in a cash game because you're still winning the same amount of money as the guy who Mm -hmm. barely scrapes by the money line, right? So these lineups should prioritize floor and minimize downside, whereas in GPPs, you shouldn't be strictly embracing variance. Like I am entering this, you know, tournament that I know is most likely negative EV for me, but I'm going to embrace variance. I'm going to embrace upside and downside and i'm going to disregard the downside and put myself in a scenario where i am going to accept these results whether or not i win or lose but if i win then i know that i went about it in the right way i i embraced variance and i threw things like floor you know to the wind and i think that that, that's really an important concept to understand and it'll have you putting the right types of lineups in the right contests, you know, that, that can be a huge thing. Just simply knowing what lineup you're building and what the reason is behind that specific lineup. Yeah. So knowing what lineups to enter can transition us into what contest you should be entering into. So we're going to specifically talk about tournaments in this contest selection segment and the tournaments you're going to want to be targeting Obviously, are the tournaments with less rake, uh, which Ben talked about 15 minutes ago. A flatter payout structure, which means the money at the top of the prize pool is flatter. Um, the, you know, so first place isn't winning 200,000 and then second place is winning, you know, 5,000 just for exaggeration's sake. I would say a good tournament is a single entry tournament. For me personally, I'm going to be targeting those tournaments where people can't be throwing 150 bullets into them and then i think just a nice general rule if you do want to grind tournaments because i know there are some tournament grinders out there you're going to want to leave the featured page of the lobby okay those are going to be the tournaments where the payouts at the top are very high so for example the millionaire maker where first place wins a million dollars and then second place wins a hundred thousand dollars so a nine hundred thousand dollar difference between first and second yeah no you're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna leave those contests for the fish to enter if you want to grind tournaments and i will say a good tool to utilize is the roto grinders chrome extension Mm -hmm. tool now i don't know i don't know if a lot of people know about this but roto grinders has a free tool that you can install on your chrome browser and i don't know if it does it for fanduel because you know we're really a DraftKings uh using podcast but on DraftKings, it will tell you the margin or aka the rake of each contest it'll show you the overlay or potential overlay of said contests and then it will also show you like the ownership um percentages if you have a uh, premium roto grinders account which you know most people might not have it but it'll show that as well and it shows a lot of valuable stuff like it, it it'll show you know how much what percentage of the prize pool goes to first what percentage is in mm-hmm. the top 10 it'll show you what the minimum cash line is and that's another thing to look at in contest selection like especially in gpps you know it, it's going to be better for the casual player to be in something with a higher min cash line, which means that the minimum person in this contest is cashing, say if it's 2x, 
Like, for example, one of the contests that a lot of people have touted as being one of the best payout structures in DFS is the Slant on DraftKings, which is a $9 contest where it's a field of 39.2 thousand people. The top 20% win money, and at the very lowest payout, you're at least doubling your money. Yeah. So that's going to be, that's going to be a huge thing. Like for example, in the Millie maker, I think it's like 1.5. So the $20 entry at the minimum money line is going to be like $30, right? Yeah. I think it, it might even be $25, honestly. Yeah. It, or is it 30? It, it might be one or the other, but yeah, it's somewhere around 1.5. Right. So, so that's going to be something that you're going to want to look at as min cash line. And you're going to want to know exactly, you know, what the drop off is between say, first place and 10th place that's always very telling about how good that contest is that goes into you know into the fact of if you want to be a profitable player you're gonna have to do your research you know on the contest you're entering if you just don't want to be blindly burning your money if you don't want to throw your money out the window and and you want to have at least some positive ev you're going to want to go deeper and you're going to want to look at these tournaments that you're entering at these cash games that you're entering into, you know, what is the min cash? Like Ben said, the $9 slant is a minimum two X, which is one of the best contests that you can enter into. So it just goes all into do your research. And like I mentioned there, there's tools to help you like the Roto grinders extension tool is one of the best tools out there and it's free like you can't ask for anything better than that like it's a free tool that they give you and it'll help you become a better dfs player in my opinion absolutely i mean i love the rg tool i mean they should be paying us for this to be honest but um seriously though like just in the interest of helping listeners become better players if you don't have the roto grinders chrome extension you should get it it's one of the best tools that's available for free in DFS. And, you know, just so people don't think that we're, you know, getting paid off for this, I'll recommend another uh, site's article. And that's the Adam Levitan's contest selection article that he wrote recently, I think is a really good jumping off point. If you, you know, are having a little trouble understanding, you know, open up the DraftKings lobby and then read, you know, Levitan's most recent article talking about contest selection. I think it's a great jumping off point for people who are just getting into DFS. Some good information if if you're having, you know, a little bit of anxiety looking at all these, you know, hundreds of contests, not knowing which one is the best one to enter. He he does a really uh-huh. good job of putting that in a concise list for people to understand. I, I read that article. It's a great article to read. And especially if you're a beginner and, you know, we, we kind of outline some of the contests that you should be entering or the way that you should be looking to enter contests. But if we were to go into, you know, as, as deep as he went in that article, we'd be sitting here for two hours. So just in the interest of time, we're not going to do that. But like Ben mentioned, you go ahead and check out that article. Yeah. And, and just one last thing I'll say, Joey mentioned it briefly. And I think that there is a lot of value to be had in just entering single entry tournaments. You know, if, if you were willing to put your, you know, take against it. You have the same odds as everybody else in a single entry. And if you really believe that you have an edge and if you think that your information is good and your process is good, eventually that should show itself in single entries. You're not, you don't have to worry about all oh, this guy has, you know, 150 times better chance to win because he MME. Well, no, it's like everybody's single entry, mano y mano, best man <laughs> wins. And I, I personally, would rather play 20 different $5 single entries than, you know, a $100 entry into a MME contest where other people are, are dropping, you know, thousands yeah. of dollars personally. Or that brings up a good point. 
just with cash games is there are MME double ups and you do not want to play in those. So if you take away one thing from, you know, the cash game section, do not play in those MME double ups. Just strictly play the single entry double ups. The cash lines are lower and you're not going to be facing off against those DFS pros that are running 150 lineups into a contest that has 5,000 entries, which actually provides a significant advantage uh, for them in, in a contest with that many entries. And then it also raises the cash line as we see uh, year in and year out. The cash line and the MME uh, double ups are roughly about five to six points higher than the cash line in the single entry double up. So stay away from the MME stuff and the single entry tournaments are also probably the best tournaments to enter into, especially if you're a new DFS player. I just wanted to say that because that I feel like that is a very important, important distinction, I should say, between the MME double ups and the single entry double ups. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, that, that's not to say that there's not still great money to be had in these single entries just because it, the, the fields are a little bit smaller because obviously, you know, if they're not counting on pros to max enter, you know, they're going to, they're going to put out smaller tournaments. Like, for example, you can enter a $75 single entry tournament on DraftKings that only has a field of, you know, like 750 people and win 5,000 first. Like, it, it's great stuff. You know, there's still good money up top these tournaments with single entries. And that's usually primarily what I play, to be honest. Um, I have not been a player traditionally who enters the Millie maker. I think that it's a negative EV tournament for sure. But, uh, you know, this year I'll be at least single bulleting every single week with Godius hashtag Godius challenge. But other than that, I will be staying away from MME GPPs and just focusing my action in single entries and even three maxes, I think are pretty good too. Yeah. I usually single bullet into the Millie maker as well, just because I'm trying to shoot for the million dollars, like million dollars is, is life changing money. So you might as well just burn $20 in the most negative EV contest <laughs> you could find on any single website to try and at least change your life uh, significantly. So, you know, see, Joey, what Joey just said right there is like a prime example. Like he knows it's negative EV, but his goal is to win a million dollars and he's going to make that decision and he's not going to feel bad about it. And that's what I respect. And like that, as long as you know, why you're doing something and how you're going to do it, then you're good. You know, just don't be making blind choices and eventually you'll be able to improve and, and get better at this thing that we all enjoy doing. And, and that just goes into some general DFS talk. Like you should know what you want before you open the DraftKings app. You should know what you're, you know, trying to do. Are you trying to grind? Are you doing it for fun? I think that's the overarching theme of this episode is essentially just knowing what you're playing for. Um, are you playing for fun? Are you playing to grind out a profit? Are you playing to get better? Um, you know, are you playing just because you're bored and there's nothing else to do? Just uh, be real with yourself. And I will say the number one thing that I, wa I will advise anybody to do in any area of your life is, you know, put in the time, put in the time each and every week. We have six, seven days between each NFL main slate every single week. That's more than enough time to sit at your computer, you know, an hour or two a day is what usually what I do and look over news, look over your lineup, you know, look at your previous contest, see where you're failing at, see where you're going good at. And just keep on improving your process. If you're not doing that, you're just going to lose money. Um, and, you know, you might be fine with losing money, but I'm not. 
So my advice is just continuously, you know, trying to improve yourself and and uh, and just keep in mind why you're playing and, and why are you doing what you're doing. I mean, I think that that's a good place to end it. I, I completely agree with that wholeheartedly. And and yeah, I mean, I think that that's incredibly important. Accountability and and understanding taking taking account for your wins and your losses you know like it's great to get it's easy to get really high right like after a win like i'm the best dfs player of all time i just banked this gpp and then you play your entire bankroll the next week and you know the variance goes the other way and you're done yeah you know slow and steady wins the race and just don't get too emotionally invested which goes back to something we talked about at the top of the show you should not be playing money that if you lose, it's going to start really affecting your life because that's when things get kind of crazy for you as, as like a human being. You know, hopefully we all have that self-control. I'm working on that in my personal life and I'm, I've am i come to find DFS is actually a great way to hone that skill because it's something I care about, something I think I'm good at, and it's something that I put real money on the line for. So I, I it inspires me to work hard in that way. And, and that's kind of one of the things that I get most out of DFS is that inspiration to work hard at something that I care about. These facts. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope that it helps some people out there. Episode 85. And, you know, we're going to be coming up on 100 during the season. Make sure you are subscribed all the way through. Our next episode will be sort of a conclusion of the off season. We'll look at some of our takes, you know, say what we were, you know, happy about in, in terms of maybe some of our best ball ownership uh, we'll look ahead, make some some bets on, you know, season totals, maybe even discuss a little bit of week one betting action. And one week from today, we are live talking about week one, talking about the week one slate. I'm so excited to get into this. It, it almost doesn't feel real, just the super surreal offseason with no preseason games. It's just like, all right, guys. It's time for the season. Let's go. And and I'm so excited for it. So make sure you guys are subscribed to the YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast, subscribed on every possible platform that you can be so you don't miss anything. We're going to be giving it our all this season. And I just want to say thank you to the listeners who have supported us up to this point and will continue to support us throughout the season. And, and that's going to be it for us this week. So we will be back on Monday with the podcast that I just discussed. As always, you can follow us at the DFS Dose on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as our personal Twitters. I'm at Ben Hover, B-E-N-H-A-U-V-E-R. Joey, tell them where they can find you. <laughs> Actually, Joey stopped recording and has left the call. I just found out. So you can follow Joey at Joey Carrion DFS. Make sure you do. Um, and we will be back next week. Thank you, guys.